If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our gallant lads gave a cheer and charged over the parapet. Um, We don't report like that anymore, and they didn't actually report like that in the Second World War. That was much more sort of First World War reporting. That was John Simpson talking to us about his new book, We Chose to Speak of War and Strife. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of October 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our interview this week is with John Simpson, the BBC's world affairs editor, and a journalist with more than half a century of experience reporting from all over the globe. His new book, We Chose to Speak of War and Strife, tells the stories of foreign correspondents such as him, from the Crimean War until the modern clashes in the Middle East. He spoke to our digital editor, Emma Mason. So, uh, your new book, We Chose to Speak of War and Strife, is a history of foreign correspondence interwoven with your own personal experiences. What motivated you to write this book and what do you you hope to achieve with it? Two things, really. Uh, One, a rather sad thing, I suppose. Um, I felt that it was an elegy for uh, a profession which is now well on its way out. Um, Foreign correspondents are few and far between. Newspapers, organisations of different news types can't afford to keep people in expensive foreign capitals. Um, From now on, with the falling pound, it'll be even more expensive and even harder to keep people uh, in, in, in continental Europe or in Africa or in the Americas. And that means fewer correspondence. So that was one side of it. I wanted to kind of mark what I regard as the passing of the profession. But also, just in case I'd got it wrong, I suppose I was trying to hedge my bets and um, show people, you know, what to do, how to do the job, what, what are the key principles behind it. And what would you say those principles are? Well, aside from the... Uh, the kind of more moral principles of, you know, straight reporting and honesty and and decency and so forth. Um, A decency, I mean, 
uh, in the sense of uh, you know behaving decently to your audience, so therefore being being honest with them and straight with them. Um, but aside from that, um, a, a number of of principles which I've kind of learned over the years never never leave a story until it's completely finished. Don't walk away from it. Don't don't um, think that you can probably um, do it better from home or um, you can do it cheaper or anything like that. You've got to stick with it and make sure that you get there all the way. And there are one or two slightly sad cases, one of them my own, um, of people that did leave the story before it went. The people who, for instance, left Saigon, uh, when it fell in 1975, that was a, a good example of really how not to do it. Um, and then other other principles such as um, you know who to follow, who to rely on in a in a complex changing story. And I've got some ideas about that. And it's it's principles of that kind that I've I've tried to jot down and show other people who might want to do the same job in one way or another. I was really interested to read how you came to decide to become a foreign correspondent, having started out at the BBC as a sub-editor in 1966. Could you tell us a little bit more about about that? Yes. Well, I I didn't really enjoy being a sub-editor very much, and I managed to kind of escape from the radio newsroom uh, uh, after 18 months, and I became a producer in radio news but i i didn't really like that all that well i couldn't understand what it was that i wanted to do and one day when i was was thinking about this in the office i shared with with other people i i came out into the corridor and was almost bowled over by an incredibly glamorous character still going still broadcasting he's now the bbc correspondent in rome david willie and um well, I'm 72, he's a bit older than me, but uh, at that stage, he was uh, a, a, a young man in his mid-twenties, going very far, very fast. He was the deputy um, diplomatic correspondent at the time, and and charming, and really, really nice to people like me who didn't count way down the, the list, and that's always, I think, a pretty good sign. And... Um, I, I just thought this is the most glamorous character I've ever seen. And he he said to me, oh, terribly sorry, he bashed into me. He said, I'm just on the way to the airport. I can't remember where he was going, but it was somewhere like Buenos Aires. And I thought in that instant, that's what I want to do. I want to be running down corridors saying I'm on my way to Buenos Aires. Well, it took a little bit of time, took a couple more years, but then I, I was able to do it myself. And your career has obviously spanned 50 years and you've witnessed some, some key historical events, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, the hanging of Saddam Hussein. I mean, what highlights can you draw on these particularly standout moments in your career? Well, sometimes things that people are now starting to forget, of course, but in 1978, uh, I um, latched on to the the events that were unfolding in Iran, um, and there were demonstrations every month or so in which people were being shot down uh, in large numbers in the streets, and it seemed very dangerous, very worrying. And I 
it took me a little bit of time to persuade the BBC to to send me there, but eventually I managed. And then I went back and back and back and back. And eventually, when Ayatollah Khomeini, whom I went to interview in Paris, uh, decided that the time was right, he got on a charter flight from Paris to Tehran. And that was the final overthrow of the Shah and the establishment of the uh, Islamic Revolution, which is still in power uh, in in Iran. And I flew in on his plane with him. The BBC got word that um, he, the plane was going to be shot down. And so they ordered me not to get on board. But that was another of my lessons. Back your own judgment. Don't follow the judgment of people hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles away who have your best interests at heart, um, often, usually, but who don't actually know what what the, the conditions on the ground, or in my case, I suppose, in the air, w- w- actually really are. And... Um, I, I went back and found myself, uh, you know, at the center of the greatest story in the world at that time. The revolution in Iran affected everybody across the globe, especially in in Britain. And uh, the, of course, all the, the you know the the oil price and and everything was severely affected, and uh, the balance of of international power in Central Asia was heavily heavily affected, and remains so. To this day, so I'm really glad that when the foreign editor said to me, "I'm ordering you not to get on that plane," and I put the phone down on him, I was rude, and I I had to apologise for my rudeness later. And I'm very glad I did it. Absolutely, and it it sounds like an incredibly dangerous job, and one of the many obstacles that foreign correspondents face. Would you say that the job um, has become more dangerous over time? I think it's become more dangerous in the last uh, few years, really, since the invasion of Iraq um, in 2003. Um, More journalists died then than uh, I think just about any time in the past. I'm not sure about the Second World War, but um, in a a short space of time, more journalists were killed than than I think than at any other time in, in, in history. Um, they included my translator. And um, that was really difficult. And then since then, of course, we've had the rise of ISIS and the the shocking murders on camera of, of various journalists, um, which, you know, uh, makes, it, makes it really, really difficult. Now, I think, if I were instructed by my desk not to go to uh, Syria, or or nor or Iraq, I, I I suspect I might not be quite so cavalier in putting the phone down on them. And how, when you're faced with these dangers, how do you go about overcoming those fears? Well, yeah, I think you just have to to do do the job, really. Essentially, I mean, nobody nobody makes you do it. Um, as you can see, uh, the, the the people back in London are not saying, go on, I'm not going to accept it, uh, anything other than a really first-class story from you. I don't want to hear all this wittering on about danger. On the contrary, I mean, they're the ones that are saying, 
no, I don't think you should do this. And uh, look, it's not worth it. And nothing's worth losing your life for. But if you take the decision that you're going to be there and you're going to cover the story, then you might as well do it properly. And another one of my the principles I try to put forward in this book of mine is you've got to get in close. It's no good sitting back in your hotel and um, uh, you know trying to make phone calls and find out what's happening. You've got to get right up close to it. And if you work for television, you've got to get close enough to see what is actually happening and, and the the shootings that are going on and, uh, um, you know, the bombs that are going off and so forth. You can't do it. Nobody makes you, as I say. And um, if you don't do it that way, then nobody is is going to criticise you afterwards. But I just think if you want to do a decent job, if you want to really kind of pin it down and, and make sure that you've seen what is actually happening instead of just guessing, then you've got to get in close. And if you get in close, well, sometimes you can get into trouble. Um, I counted out in a rather sort of um, train-spotting type way that I've been close to death um, nine times from bombs and bullets once from a knife, in fact, um, early on. And, you know, I, it, it, every time I've, I've, uh, I've survived, I've got away with it. And um, I think you just have to keep pressing on and being professional. When the Americans bombed my, my team and my poor translator died um, in 2003 in northern Iraq, um, we all just kind of kept on doing our job. I did pieces to camera, um, uh, you know, with the things going off all around us. The cameraman was absolutely superb, um, kept everything technically uh, excellent, uh, was thinking ahead all the time. The security man uh, dived into our burning car and got out all the equipment and all the the cases that we that we needed. Um, the producer was working out different ways of what we should be doing next and other people I should be talking to and and, and so forth. And you know, you just you just do the job really, um, and and just keep on doing it um, and don't get try not to get too scared. And what other hazards and obstacles do foreign correspondents face? Well, they face obstacles absolutely everywhere. I mean, fine if you're going to um, continental Europe or or the United States or countries with a, uh, a, a kind of democratic basis that accept that journalists should be allowed to come to their country and, and, and report. But so many countries nowadays insist on having uh, visas, and the visas are often quite hard to get. Getting a visa to Iraq at the moment is, is, is extremely hard. Um, it's all bureaucratic stuff. I don't think it's directed at, say, the BBC or directed at me um, personally. On the contrary, I mean, whenever I 
managed to get there. I've got very good relations with the prime minister there. But, you know, I, I mean, the last time I saw him, I said, look, I'm having tremendous difficulties getting getting a visa. And he said, oh, that'll be OK. Just, you know, I'll, we'll, no, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. Well, sadly, um, you still have to go through, I think it's three different government ministries and they're all terribly slow and they don't want journalists there. And that's true right across the globe. I mean, I can't go to Iran nowadays. The last time I was there was in 2009 um, for what looked like uh, momentarily uh, the possibility of a, a, a new revolution against the Islamic State. Um, I've never been allowed back since then. And uh, it, it's easy for people to to go there as tourists from the West now, and it's a wonderful country to be a tourist in, but to be a journalist from the BBC is is, is to find blocks at every corner. And your book covers 200 years of foreign reporting. So um, how would you say that the sort of challenges uh, have changed over time? Well, I mean, the the biggest change is the, the speed with which things have Happen. And that's happened even in my own uh, career in the last 50 years, that um, you used to be able to go off to a country. I mean, we'll say Iran, for instance, during the revolution. I could, I'd just go there with a, with a camera crew. And every time we could, which wasn't very often, I'd get in contact with the, the the desk back in London and say what was happening, what we were doing. But it was difficult. Uh, you couldn't, phone calls were, were almost impossible to get, um, took an age to set up. Um, the best way was through um, uh, just a, the old telex machine, just to sort of have an interchange on the telex. Um, and that required going to a post office, a big post office, central post office, um, or sometimes a, a hotel. And, and so you were pretty much left on your own. Nowadays, I think this is true of all foreign correspondents everywhere. Their main complaint is that, that their desk wants to micromanage their movements, wants to tell them what's got to be in the newspaper tomorrow morning and what what line they've got to take and so forth. And that's something, of course, which foreign correspondents tend not to like very much. But going further back, I mean, what what is extraordinary um, to me, I've never really studied the, the sort of what I call the paleo journalism before the the distant past of it um even the very very first uh, newspapers in the early 1620s uh in in england um were recognizably like today's i mean they have headlines and they have um, you know, illustrations, and they have corrections even. Well, you don't get many corrections in the newspapers nowadays, but the, the, the early newspapers um, uh, invented really by a man called Nathaniel Butter in 1620, um, they, it, they're recognizably newspapers in, in the sense that we have them now, and television and radio are recognizably part of that of that industry. So 
there there we are you know nearly 400 years ago um the 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 business was was actually set up then Amazing. And, and I was particularly interested to read that you argue that the profession has remained surprisingly unchanged in all those 400 years. I mean, um, what can you tell us about that? Well, the, the instincts, the, um, the approach uh, tends to remain the same. I mean, that balance between interesting people and, and perhaps entertaining them and informing them about serious things. That's a a balance which Nathaniel Butter felt and found in 1620. And it's it's still with us, you know. Do you put Kim Kardashian's uh, robbery uh, high up your 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 on your front page or in your news bulletin, or do you put it down towards the end as sort of um, uh, kind of almost entertainment. Uh, it's it, these are questions which which we all still face, just like just like Nathaniel Butter faced. And when you come a little bit closer to to uh, to m- modern times, um, William Howard Russell, the great um, uh, uh, foreign correspondent, war first real war correspondent. Um, worked for the Times uh, um, famously in the Crimean War. He 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 did the job exactly as as people like me would would recognise it. He'd, he'd just go round the the tents after the Charge of the Light Brigade, for instance, which perhaps his greatest story. Um, he spent the rest of the day going around the tents of, of people who had been involved in the charge. He'd watched it from the heights, um, and then he found out the, the details of, of um, what the individual experiences had been of ordinary troopers and of, of the officers. He, he was an Irishman, and, and uh, that made it easier, I think, for him to be kind of just open and jolly with everybody. Everybody loved Billy Russell and, and uh, he um, they loved to see him and he used to carry around a, a, a bottle of Irish whiskey with, with him so he sloshed out for the, for the troops you know and you can bet that after they'd been through an experience like that they were very glad of the whiskey and very glad to talk and you know I don't I don't actually carry Irish whiskey with I have an Irish passport but I do um I do try to talk to people and I try to be jolly and open with as many people as possible. And and I think that that's the way in which journalism then and journalism now really operates. Having done your research and say, if you looked at uh, the first foreign correspondent in, in a modern sense, Henry Crabb Robinson, uh, reporting on the Napoleonic Wars, and 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 fast forward to say, reporting on the Iraq War or events in Syria. There's so much has remained the same. Can you identify what has changed over over time? Well, the uh, the key thing that's changed is the technology, of course. Um, yes, as you say, uh, Henry Crabb Robinson writing about the the uh, Napoleonic Wars. He wrote about the the burial of Sir John Moore at Corunna, um, a, a, a British victory, which nevertheless saw the the death of the commanding officer. It was a poem that all kids of my age 
uh, the, used to have to learn, not a drum was heard, not a funeral notice, his course to the ramparts we carried. Um, now, I don't suppose anybody ever remembers the poem. Um, so he saw those things, but he had to write these enormous dispatches. Um, uh, when, when William uh, Howard Russell uh, wrote his story about the, the charge of the Light Brigade, it was, I think, about 4,000 words long. And he wrote, um, sitting on a, on a saddle, on his saddle, with a candle, and he had to stop writing when the candle went out. I mean, it's like the battery going out on your, on your laptop. But now, of course, people don't want 4,000 words. They want, they want, you know, short and sharp stuff, and they want it right now and really fast. And the m mode of, of um, putting the stuff over, of course, has changed um, utterly. Utterly. But, you know, if you got Henry Crabb Robinson and uh, uh, William Howard Russell down together, what a pleasure that would be. And took round perhaps to the bar um, or the near, a nearby pub and said to them, look, I want you now to start working, say, for the BBC or for the Daily Telegraph or something. Um, now, I'll just give you a quick update on everything that's been happening in the last 200 years. Um, and the changes that do you know i'm I'm pretty certain that after about an hour uh they'd look at each other and look at look back at me and they'd say, "Yeah, okay, I think we could do it now and they they'd do a really, really good job that's a, that's an amazing thought <laughs> and um and how has the sort of style of reporting changed over time? I was really interested to read your description of the sort of clipped impersonal style of second world war reporting. Obviously that would not be the description today how How, how has that changed over time? Yes, I mean the 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 tone uh, has has changed constantly really every every two or three decades um you can date uh, reporting if you didn't if you didn't know what the date was, you could fix it pretty clearly. I think by by the tone of or the you know uh, our gallant lads uh, gave a cheer and charged over the the, the parapet. Um, we don't report like that anymore, and they didn't actually report like that in the Second World War. That was much more sort of first. First World War reporting things after the First World War. There was such a reaction against all of that kind of stuff and the uh, disgraceful way in which some uh, uh, British war correspondents. There were very, very few of them in the First World War. About only a half a dozen in on the Western Front, um, and the disgraceful way in which some of them covered up what had happened there just caused a, a real reaction, a savage reaction, really, against the newspapers and against reporting. And so the the newspapers changed their manner of reporting. Um, by the Second World War, they didn't want that kind of thing. They didn't want our brave lads with a, with a cheer. You know, they didn't want that kind of thing. They wanted factual factual reporting on that the sort of stiff upper lip uh, um, uh, response was was very much there with the journalists as well as with the soldiers and so that uh, that changed um, but um, now we tend 
I think perhaps wrongly, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but we do tend to sort of sit back and make judgments all the time about what's going on in a way that um, that wouldn't have happened in the Second World War, wouldn't have been needed really in the Second World War. But for instance, with uh, with the invasion of, of Iraq, um, the judgmentalism was one of the most obvious aspects of it. And as I say, I was fairly guilty of that as, as, as well as others. Well, you mentioned there the First World War, and I was very interested to read about the um, First World War correspondent Philip Gibbs's guilt-ridden confessions about his, his failure to give a full picture of the fighting. And I was wondering your view on um, how accurately over history you think foreign correspondents have been able to report on what's, what's happening, that level of honesty and accuracy. Yes, um, I, I would have given them, given me um, something like 60%. Um, you know, you can see something, you can watch the whole, the whole course of what's going on and not, not understand it. Uh, I, I was there at the, on the day of the revolution in Iran um, and I, I, I couldn't understand what the hell was happening. I, I, I tried my best. I went around. I talked to as many people as I possibly could in the sort of William Howard Russell tradition. And I sat on the barricades and waited for the Shah's tanks to, to, to charge towards us. Um, I could see what was happening in front of my eyes. But what I couldn't get was a proper overall view of what what was going on that day. And that was partly because um, of ignorance, and it was partly because human beings simply can't take in the whole of the battlefield, as it were. And, I mean, that was what poor Philip Gibbs, whom you quoted, um, that was his his problem. Uh, he, he was a deeply honest and, and a man of, of great nobility, I, I, I would say, courageous and um, uh, with, a, with a, a loathing, uh, as far as I can tell, of the, the kind of correspondence that, that made things up and, and uh, uh, gave the wrong, deliberately gave the wrong view. But, you know, you, you're only as good as the information you're getting. And on a huge battlefield, dozens of miles across, you, if you're, all you're getting is what the official army line is, which is, you know, our men have captured this place and that place and they've moved forward uh, in brilliantly and they've occupied territory um, uh, right deep into German lines and so forth. I mean, Philip Gibbs was rather good at saying the British army says and the official say and, and uh, the, the um, army, the equivalent of, of the army press office uh, uh, tells us this, that and the other. He was good at pinning it down, but it didn't matter. People believed it at home. And afterwards, he felt absolutely terrible uh, about what he'd what he'd written about the first day of the Somme, for instance, the worst day for British uh, arms in in our history. And yet 
he, like like the others, presented it as being a magnificent victory. And he never forgave himself for that. And he wrote a series of books afterwards, which which just, um, you know, criticised himself and uh, and the way it was done. Do you think it's ever possible to tell the whole truth? Well, I think you can tell the whole truth about something quite quite small and limited, um, an event. Uh, I mean, I think that, for instance, uh, William Howard Russell told the absolute truth about about the charge of the Light Brigade and. Uh, every history uh, of of that and of the Crimean War always depends on what Russell uh, came up with, um, but it, it, it of course wasn't wasn't the hundred percent truth because you're never going to get that. And with thousands, perhaps ten tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of men, you're never going to get an overall. Uh, a precise picture. All you can do is to get a general picture, which is as accurate as as you can make it. I've made many, many mistakes in my career, um, but never, I think, I've never said anything deliberately that I knew to be to be wrong for some sort of effect or something like that. I would think that was um, the most disgraceful kind of behaviour. But yes, of course, I've met, I've made loads of mistakes it's impossible not to um in in the the way that that things happen and that information gets passed around and do you think um that ability has changed over time let's say, say with the the changing nature of warfare comparing say the first world war to a more modern conflict um has it become more difficult or or easier would you say i think it's i think it's Differently difficult. Um, I think it's it's uh, uh, nowadays. Uh, when you think back to the, for instance, the invasion of of Iraq, um, we all, and I, I, I certainly include myself in this, um, were very very slow in understanding what the effect of the invasion had been. It took me um, months, I think, uh, to realize that this big opposition grouping among among, um, uh, Sunni Muslims was building up into a a major um, resistance movement. I, at first, I mean, I saw the evidence uh, that was in front of us, sometimes bombs, sometimes uh, uh, ad hoc roadblocks that would suddenly be thrown up. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we'd be, people would be shot at uh, from them and so forth. Um, uh, roadside bombs and so forth. And you, but you, you thought, you didn't realize that there was a kind of, um, an, an organizing brain behind it that that there was a movement that was that was making this happen you thought instead it was just you know a few soldiers a few this and that and that that was a, a grave mistake because I think if we'd realized that there was a proper opposition movement that was fighting a, a what became a pretty major war against the Americans and the British, um, and the others that if we'd realized that right at the start, um, then I think 
our, our perception of the whole of the nature of the invasion, the, the way it was being run would have been different. Uh, absolutely. And, and you've, as you've ex- explained so far, that you've been witness to so many pivotal moments in, in history over the course of your career. What would you nominate as the most standout moments um, in the history of, of foreign reporting, perhaps you know, over the course of your career or, or just in the research of your book? Well, I've got to say, I mean, the the, the book confirmed it to me, but I'd, I'd guessed it all along that really, although I've I've had fifty years in the in the center of world events and seen lots and lots of things, missed some, of course, inevitably. Um, but um, the, my fifty years have been pretty much in the shallows uh, compared with what my great friend and and uh, supporter Martha Gellhorn. Uh, for instance, went through the the Spanish Civil War, the war in China with the with the Japanese, um, the Second World War, the uh, the Korean War, um, right right through till till modern times. Um, my career, um, you know, I've I've seen the best of, as it were, of what what the world could offer, but it it didn't didn't match what Martha Gellhorn saw. Um, I, the major event of my life was was the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I was was lucky enough to see that for myself and to be there um, as it as it happened. Um, but you know, there've been there've been loads of others. I mean, the I was the BBC correspondent in uh, um, South Africa at the height of apartheid in the mid seventies, and the, the the collapse of apartheid and a peaceful transition to majority rule in South Africa was the most magnificent moment of my of of my life. I mean, I I loved watching the Berlin Wall come down and I loved uh, seeing the revolution in, in Czechoslovakia and, and, and other Eastern European countries. I saw them all, in fact, and those were wonderful moments. But they didn't match somehow, didn't quite match what happened in, in South Africa in 1994 when everybody was anticipating a, a, a civil war and it turned out to be entirely peaceful and entirely harmonious that was the greatest moment of my of my life and 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 what have been some of the harder moments you must have witnessed some very difficult and troubling events yes well i have um massacres and uh, um you know starvation and uh, um siege of of Sarajevo. I spent a lot of time there between 1992 and 1995 during what was, I think, probably the worst human rights uh, abuse of our our times, the worst thing I suspect that's happened since the Second World War. Uh, That was terrible. People um, uh, suffering from Serious thirst in the summers because the uh, the Bosnian Serbs refused to allow water into the city, uh, and then in the winter um, they refused to allow 
uh, heating oil or, or cooking oil in. So people were hungry and and frozen in the winter. That was a terrible, terrible business. And I, I, I'll never possibly forget that massacre of Sabra and Shatila in in um, in Lebanon in 1982. Um, hard to to forget, uh, uh, to forget that I didn't, I stumbled across the massacre, the event, the effects of the massacre. I saw hundreds of, of, of dead bodies heaped up everywhere. Um, the use Saddam Hussein's use of, of chemical weapons against the Kurds in 1988 in the town of Halabja. I went there and, uh, I was, uh, bust in there and saw that, saw, People dying and dead of, of, of chemical weapons. So I've seen, I mean, I have seen my my share of, of horrors, but um, I've I've tried not to let it affect me. I mean, I've, I've tried to not to hide these things in any way, and um, to not to not to forget them because I don't think you should try and forget them. But I've I they don't have uh, as much power over me as they used to. I'm interested to know how your view of the having researched your book and, like you said, witnessed some horrific uh, events in the course of your career. How has your view of just human history been shaped? I mean, do you, has the world become a darker place over time? Would you would you say? No, in fact, I would say the opposite. I mean, there are fewer wars now and fewer people dying in wars than there were when I became a journalist in 1966. Um, crime has, has dropped uh, in, in remarkable ways in the, in the Western world, surprisingly. And although we're very aware of every single incident that, that happens around the, around the world, um, it doesn't mean to say that there are more of them. And you know, we we forget these things. Uh, Afghanistan uh, is going through um, a, a, a process of renewal now. When I think most people probably thought that the Taliban were going to take over Afghanistan uh, again quite soon. Um, now we don't even think about it. Why don't we think about it? Well, because we're not hearing any reporting from it. And why are we not hearing any reporting from it? Because the war there, uh, bombings there, and so on, are fewer and further between. So, I I think that the world is a slightly um, safer place and a slightly better place than it was when I became a journalist half a century ago. And I imagine that that process will will continue, so that foreign correspondents tend not to be concerned so much with wars and death and, and bombings as they are with, you know, political deals and uh, negotiations. And that can only be a, a wonderful thing. And continuing that look to the future, what, what do you think the future holds for foreign correspondents? I, I, in the book, you say you fear it's a trade that is on the way out. Yes, I mean it, it. It it is pretty much. I I I think the figures show that um, in the sixties, nineteen sixties, the Daily Express, which in those days was really still quite a, an impressive newspaper, 
um, had, I think, something like 30, 35 foreign correspondents uh, all over the world. Now, it, it, and for some years past, it hasn't had a single one. Um, it, we rely nowadays for our news on the news agencies and on organizations like the BBC and ARD in Germany, which also has a large number of foreign correspondents. It's a, a very, uh, you know, good uh, and and uh, worthwhile organization. Um, but uh, the numbers are fewer. Reuters uh, news agency itself is having to cut back. The BBC will certainly have to cut back as a result of the, the drop in the, in the pound. Um, and uh, uh, ARD simply manages to keep going because it's funded by a license fee. And um, uh, in the, you know, one of the richest countries in the, in the world. So, but they'll have problems too, and uh, they'll they'll they're cutting back. Everybody has to cut back, and we're dependent more on local people, um, you know, citizen journalism and so forth. Uh, all of which is wonderful, but has, um, you know, has its drawbacks. And how do you think that the impact of foreign correspondence on public opinion has has changed over time? And, and how, how do you see it influencing public opinion in the future? Well, I don't I'm not sure how much it has changed, actually, over the over the past. I mean, w- when you think what uh, how the effect of, of William Howard Russell's reporting of, of the Crimean War and the, the appalling way in which the the medical and uh, uh, food and um, uh, you know the different uh, commissariats were organised uh, that created a revolution in the in the British Army's affairs. I think that that same that same kind of influence can still be brought to bear by foreign correspondents. Um, when they hit the right note and the right moment, and uh, their their reporting is 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 uh, you know brought brought fully home to the to the public. I mean, when you think about, for instance, um, Mari Colvin's reporting of uh, the the war in Syria, which in which she eventually was was killed in 2014. Um, I I was. Very close to to Mari, and have have still great great affection for her, and I, I miss her every day. I think, um, and I miss her reporting because it was so strong and so clear, and it it had a major effect on the way in which uh, I think people in 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 Europe and in the United States. She was American. Um, felt about what was going on in the in the war there, and I think it's really um, f- f- filled our our consciousness uh, in a way that nothing else could have could have done. And you know, Murray gave her life for for that kind of reporting, and um, uh, you know, it, it it and it wasn't in vain. What then? Uh, f- words of advice would you offer to foreign correspondents of the future? Um, a variety of advice. Um, for a start, uh, don't think you're ever going to make any money at it. Um, I'm not sure that anybody ever went into the job to make money, uh, but 
uh, if they did that, that is now utterly finished. So it's a it's a job you've got to do because you want to do it and be devoted uh, to 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 the to the work and and not the recompense. Um, secondly, uh, you will be rebuffed more times than you'll be accepted and uh, and and praised by the people that employ you. And the people that do employ you uh, are often uh, nowadays not uh, not as loyal to you as they as they once were. Nevertheless, um, it is still possible for the adventurous and the 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 willing uh, to go and find out what's happening uh, around the world. And all you need is uh, a bit of a bit of cash up front and um, a, a passport and uh, um, a, a little bit of, of, of equipment and uh, but nothing much more than skype and a and a uh, a laptop and um then just go to the kind of places where interesting things are happening i the greatest regret of my life is that uh, when i was 24 i think uh, i could have gone to vietnam as a freelance i could have i could have uh, Put the money up and 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 gone to see what was happening in 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 Vietnam, and I didn't. I was newly married. My wife uh, was was uh, uh, pregnant. Um, I, I've got lots of excuses about why I didn't do it, um, but um, uh, and I I seem to have the beginnings of a career at the BBC, and for all those reasons, I didn't want to throw it up and and. Go, but I I regret it now so much. Um, I just feel you know that's what I should have done, and I think there are other people, lots and lots of other people who have those kind of feelings, and and I I think you should give in to them, and you should you should uh, head off uh, into the wide blue yonder, and um, and just see what's going on in the world. That was John Simpson. We chose to speak of war and strife. The World of the Foreign Correspondent is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. In the US, it's due out in January, also published by Bloomsbury. Meanwhile, the November edition of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's issue includes articles on Lady Jane Grey, Lenin's famous train journey, Churchill and the atom bomb, the Norman Conquest and plenty more. You can get hold of our November issue in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Christopher Marlowe is to be officially credited as William Shakespeare's co-writer on three plays by Oxford University Press. Marlowe's name will now appear on the title pages for Henry VI, Part 1, 2 and 3, in the new Oxford Shakespeare, a collection of all the playwright's known work. Despite centuries of speculation that Marlowe may have collaborated with Shakespeare, this is the first time he has received an official credit on any of Shakespeare's work. The decision to recognise Marlowe comes after an extensive research project which has identified evidence of co-writing in 17 of 44 Shakespeare plays. 
One of the general editors of the volume, Gary Taylor, stated that the researchers had verified Marlowe's contribution strongly and clearly enough to merit the co-writing credit. We can now be confident that they didn't just influence each other, but they worked with each other, he said. Rivals sometimes collaborate. In other news, a locker key from the Titanic, used on the night that ocean liner sank, has been sold at auction for £85,000, along with hundreds of other items from the ship. Used by third-class steward Sidney Sedonary on the night of the disaster in April 1912, the key was sent to Mr Sedonary's wife after her husband drowned. It remained in the family until the sale. Other lots sold at the auction included a postcard written on the Titanic by the ship's chief wireless operator and a letter written by second officer Charles Lightoller recounting the night of the disaster. Meanwhile, several unusual heritage sites, including a 16th-century shipwreck and London Zoo's aviary, have been added to English Heritage's risk register. The list includes over 5,000 sites thought to be in danger of being lost through neglect or decay, including monuments, buildings, churches, gardens and battlefields. The shipwreck in Suffolk was added to the list after a bronze gun was stolen from it, while London Zoo's aviary, built in 1965, has recently secured heritage lottery funding. Duncan Wilson, chief executive of the Government Heritage Agency, said... The good news is, this year there are fewer entries on the Heritage at Risk Register than last year. But as some places are rescued, others fall into disrepair. Many lie decaying and neglected, and the gap between the cost of repair and their end value is growing. Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are still available for our History Weekend event, which takes place in York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history such as Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Simon Sabag Montefiore and many more. For more details and tickets, please visit historyweekend.com forward slash York. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the history of Black Britons and finding out about the children of King Charles I. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.